Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hi, I'm Ben Mankiewicz, host of Turner Classic Movies. We hope you enjoyed listening to season two of The Plot Thickens based on Julie Solomon's great book, The Devil's Candy. Believe it or not, there were stories we couldn't fit into the season's seven episodes So we asked Julie to come back. She sat down with my colleague, TCM host Alicia Malone, to talk about what it was like to revisit her experience on the film set of The Bonfire of the Vanities. And she talks about her friendship with director Brian De Palma. Here are Alicia Malone and Julie Solomon. Enjoy. Hello there, I'm Alicia Malone and I'm a host on Turner Classic Movies and I have the great pleasure to sit down with Julie Salomon. Hi, Julie. Hi, Alicia. (laughs) Before we get into all that, I'd love to start out just finding out a little bit more information about you. So I know you grew up in a small town. When did you first discover movies? Oh, I think before I was born. Um, my parents are immigrants. They're from Czechoslovakia. And my mother, from the time I can remember, told us that the way she learned English when they first arrived in New York was by going to the movies endlessly. She'd pack a whole carton of food and go into the movies and just stay there until it ended. So when I was a kid, it was a two-hour drive to the nearest movie theater in Cincinnati, Ohio. And every week, we drove the two hours oh, wow. to go to the movies. Wow. So it was, a, it was a nice memory, a family memory of you and your mom. Yeah. And, and my dad and my sister, all four of us are movie fanatics. And, you know, and on television, I mean, that was pre-Netflix and all that. But they had Saturday night at the movies and Monday night pre-TCM, mm-hmm. sadly. <laughs> Otherwise, we would have just been watching TCM <laughs> 24-7. So when did you think that movies might become your job? Was it something you could have imagined growing up? No, I could not have imagined. I couldn't imagine being a writer, even though I was a voracious reader. um, My town had 700 people in it. So just the idea of all those things happening was happening someplace very far away. Um, But when I got to college, I started working on the school newspaper, and that was when I got the bug. And when did that change to writing about film and becoming a film critic? Well, it's going to sound very bizarre, but my first job out of school was with the Wall Street Journal, even though I knew nothing about 
anything about economics. That's what they did back in the day. They just kind of threw you in. And I was covering commodities. I bet you don't know what those are. I've heard about them, but couldn't tell you. I thought they were condiments. And then the next (laughs) thing we then my next job was uh, writing about banking. And I really wanted to go into something else. And at that time, this was in in 1983, they were starting a daily arts section. And the guy who ran it was really (laughs) crazy and fun and brilliant. And I went to him and I said, I'd love to do some freelance writing for you, even though I was a reporter at the paper. (sighs) So by day I was writing, you know, about international banking. And then he started having me do movie reviews because I had told him I was a big movie fan. And after about six months of that, he hired me. And that's how I got this incredible job. Wow, that's an amazing story. And this was, of course, the pre-internet age. What did the job entail at that time? Oh, my God, it was a dream job. At that time, um, I had to, I had a weekly column. So it was so much easier than reviewing, say, for the New York Times, where you had to write about every movie that came out. I could pick and choose. So I went to the movies all the time and then decided what I wanted to write about. But what they also wanted in addition was for me to do uh, stories about Hollywood. So a few times a year, I had the rough assignment of flying out from New York to L.A., staying at a really nice hotel, (laughs) and interviewing celebrities, stars, but also studio executives because it was the Wall Street Journal. And I learned an awful lot about how the business worked. How how was it? you know, being a female film critic at that time? Um, it was great because there were actually, you know, Pauline Kael was sort of the yes. the queen bee of all <laughs> the critics. Um, and Janet Maslin was at the New York Times. Um, ha- Molly Haskin, Haskell was writing. So there were a lot of female critics at the time. So it felt, it felt good. At the Wall Street Journal, it felt really good because they had never had a, a regular film critic on staff before that. Mm. So, um, and even though it sounds bizarre now, this was pre-Murdoch, uh, the Wall Street Journal ha- held a lot of clout with the studios. So, you know, you always had to tell yourself they're only being nice to you because you work at the Wall Street Journal, but it, it was fun. Do you remember the first Brian De Palma film that you ever saw? Extremely well. It was Scarface. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. No, not the first that I saw or that I reviewed. The first. What was the first that you saw and then the first uh, you reviewed? Oh, gosh. The first I saw was probably Dressed to Kill. Um, and I love-hated it. I loved it. I thought it was amazing, and I was terrified. Um, and then I think I started seeing every one of his movies, um, my favorite in that era was Blowout, which I found just so beautiful and so really incredibly well made. And I have to tell you, during the podcast, I came to appreciate Blowout even more because, remember, the main character is the sound engineer. And doing this for somebody who comes from print um, has really taught me how we're nothing without the sound (laughs) engineers. Yes, thank you to all the sound engineers out there and listening. (laughs) And the first Brian De Palma film you reviewed, that was Scarface? That was Scarface. And not only was it the first Brian De Palma film I reviewed, it was one of the first films I reviewed, period, as a film critic. And I was 
beyond terrified because it was this huge movie that was getting a lot of attention. And again, it's hard to imagine now what it was like then when a film came out because now so many films come out and they're streaming and in the movies. But in then there were these big premieres and going, you know, having that access as a film critic, you were the first one in. And I remember that screening incredibly because the movie elicited like a lot of De Palma's movies, a lot of visceral (laughs) and noisy reactions. And I'll never forget, there's a moment in this uh, movie where Al Pacino's face just goes down in a big pile of cocaine and the whole place just erupts. Um, And I, I loved it. I mean, I thought there were things about it that were really over the top, but in such a great way. And it was the first film review that I was ever quoted that my name appeared in an ad, and it was I didn't know how I felt about it, but it was exciting. Um, the other thing about Scarface was um, at the time I was about to review the film, Dick Hefner, who is the head of the ratings board, called me up and said he'd been going at it with De Palma about they wanted to give it an X mm-hmm. for violence. So I went and interviewed Hefner, and then I wove that into the review, and I said, well, I don't really think it deserves an X for violence. And what's really interesting is if you watch Scarface today, it would probably get a PG rating. Yeah, it seems pretty tame by today's yeah. standards. Do you remember the pull quote that they used for the ad? Oh, God. Well, I remember one word. I said something about epic, and that was in giant letters. <laughs> and then everything else was in smaller. And of course, I can't remember that. And I know being a film critic, it's often discouraged being friends with a filmmaker because if you have to review the films of your friend, you might not be impartial to them. Were you worried about that at all? Well, since we got off to this A, it wasn't a friendship like, you know, somebody who's my best pal. It was somebody who was quasi-friend, quasi-source at that point. But also, um, I think you're right. And I did. he was the only person from show business, per se, that I ever did that with. But again, because I was not just a pure film critic, I also was a reporter. It was this weird hybrid position at the journal. So it was useful to have somebody who was an insider um, sort of feeding things in my ear. And how did it come about that he invited you onto the set of The Bonfire of the Vanities? He knew you wanted to write a book. Did he say to you, this could be your book if you come to the set? Or was it more just you want to come and report on the film? No, what happened was I had been, I wrote a novel first that was not a big phenomenon, but it was a start. And then I had read Lillian Ross's book, Picture, which was written in the 50s. She was on the set of The Red Badge of Courage, the John Huston film. And I thought I would love to do that because it kind of would combine my reporting skills, my critical faculty, and also I wanted to do it in a novelistic way to do it as a story, not as a textbook. And so I had my antenna up. I had approached Spielberg. I did a piece for the Wall Street Journal about Spielberg and spent a week hanging out with him, which was really an interesting experience. Yeah. And um, he was, I think, what was the movie? It was a not not one of his successful movies. I blanked on the name that I had been thinking about, and thank goodness it wasn't that movie. There was an, there were two or three other movies that I had done certain amount of legwork to try and 
um, get this going because it's a big commitment both from me and from the person. And then, and I think I must have told De Palma that I was doing these various things. And then when Bonfire came up, he said, I'm going to be doing this. Part of it's going to be in New York, um, part of it in L.A. Maybe this would be something you'd be interested in. And that's how it started. Now, when he told me that, I was already six months pregnant with my first child. <laughs> so I was just sort of like, yeah, 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 this is... It's probably not going to happen. Right. You know, and how many times do people pitch you things or you pitch them things and nothing happens? And movies. Movies can collapse last minute. Nothing is secure. Exactly. And he was ambivalent about Bonfire. You know, uh, we've talked about it many times that I think if he hadn't just had casualties of war not do well and broken up with his girlfriend and twisted his ankle, he probably wouldn't have done bonfire either. But he needed to get back to work. And, you know, sometimes I thought maybe he wanted me there just as a diversion from his misery, you know, Um, because he's a very curious guy. And I think he was interested in how this book was going to turn out. You know, it was, I I mean, I saw that with people he worked with on the film. He liked tossing people these assignments and then seeing what they (laughs) would do with what they do with them. And so that was my incredible luck. And I had no idea what I was doing. You know, I was pregnant. I had a full-time job. And when he told me to come start this thing, I had no book contract. I was just getting, I mean, the first three months I worked on it, I was just collecting data. (laughs) Mm, And you could not have foreseen what was about to happen on set. Being that De Palma himself invited you, did you feel welcomed to the set by the cast and crew? Because I've done set visits before as press, and understandably the cast and crew are often annoyed that they have to stop during production and talk to the press. It's the last thing they feel like doing. Right. And that's a normal situation. This was abnormal. So I I didn't approach anybody. I would say for the first six months, I never opened my mouth. <laughs> I just watched. I just watched and watched. I mean, I'm exaggerating. It probably wasn't the first six months. But the very first scene that I, that I witnessed, the tryout of Uma Thurman when they were auditioning her to possibly play Maria, which was ultimately played by Melanie Griffith, um, I didn't. I barely said a word. I mean, I said nothing to Uma. It was or to anybody. I just sat there scribbling, scribbling. And so I think what happened was, by the time I actually started talking to people, I was a fixture. It wasn't like somebody being brought in by the PR person. Yeah, exactly. Right. And the studio didn't know I was there. So I think at a certain point, I was just there. You know. Yeah, that's amazing that you had such access. I mean, you were really privy to these conversations that most people never get to hear. You mentioned Uma Thurman and Melanie Griffith. I mean, you hear Peter Guber and Brian De Palma talking about those two and comparing them in a way that I imagine was very standard in Hollywood at the time. Listening back to that kind of audio now, what strikes you? Wow, so many things. Um, A kind of amazement. I mean, the way you look at them, I look at them and think, first of all, how in the world did I save these? I mean, a little bit of shame there, thinking I'm a pack rat. Um, But I also thought, I think I've seen a lot of those conversations with obviously the perspective of knowing how the film turned out, for one thing, but also with the benefit of 
the Me Too movement and all that kind of thing, you know, at the time, I knew something was off and inappropriate in a certain way. And I'm not saying that I, I, I think Brian was very generous to women in general, and he was never rude about women or anything like that. But, you know, when they would talk about women, uh, he and Lynn Stolmaster were comparing and contrasting Melanie and Uma. And, you know, they were being just very frank about it. And neither one of those men were predators or anything like that. But I think even if they were thinking the things they thought when they said certain things about women, they wouldn't have said them, at least not in front of another woman. Yeah. And they weren't even saying things that were so terrible, except it's all terrible. It is such a a, a complicated thing to talk about when you think about the, the right way and the wrong way for, say, men in the business to talk about actresses and to, to approach sex scenes. I mean, what were you thinking at the time when you were hearing these kind of conversations? Did you think anything? It kind of, it was quite accepted, I guess. Um, my first thought always, the more terrible things that were said, the happier I was because it was <laughs> amazing and great, but it's also like being inside somebody's thought bubble, you know, in a cartoon, somebody said something really polite to you and then you see what they're actually thinking. And I, the very first interview I did, or I wasn't interviewed, the very first time I was there was the Uma Thurman audition in Brian De Palma's office. And that's when I was still trying to think, am I insane to be doing this? Um, and within two seconds, I mean, I just remember coming home and being exhilarated and immediately typing up all my notes so that I wouldn't forget anything or not be able to read something or I just knew it was great. So, you know, one thing about listening to it now, it's that step back where, I mean, at the time it was like material. I'm gathering material and the worse it is, the better it is. The more catastrophe, the better it is. Not that you're hoping for catastrophe, because there are also warm, fuzzy moments. <laughs> but I can't say at the moment I was saying, oh, this is an outrage. And part of it is, I think, as a, as a reporter, which is different from being a critic, you try to filter out your critical sense in a way as you collect the material, because you want to be open. The more of a blank slate I was, hmm. the better, because I wanted people to not know that I was there to think about what she writing down. Mm -hmm. And the longer I was there, and I think, but when I heard those things, it's like, twing, that's good. Write that down. Yeah, I mean, you, you hear the podcast when you're talking to Eric Schwab about the Concord shot. Such a quick moment in the film, beautiful moment, but one you could easily miss. So much time and care and money went into that. And that's what struck me when listening to the podcast was a reminder, A, that no movie sets out to be a bad movie. Uh, B, that it's incredible that any movie gets made. And C, that a lot of time and care and money goes into every single part of movie making. I think that's right. And, and I also think that, you know, one thing that I saw really was what incredible professionals the people were at almost every level. Everybody was working really hard. I mean, which doesn't mean to say there aren't some jobs that are 
jobs that you just sit around because that's your job, or it's a union job in New York and they've brought somebody in from LA, so you're paid not to do something. But that's pretty rare. Most of the people really are perfectionists about their piece of the movie. I mean, you see it with the costume designer. So we know Ann Roth, who's the costume designer, but along with Ann Roth comes an army of people who have to fit things and who do beading and who do the fittings, and they really care. They want it to be great. And I think that it's not like this money is being, I mean, yes, it is being spent willy-nilly, but if there were less money to be spent, people would be working even harder. Yeah, and it's not just one decision that affects the production. It's, it's a lot of tiny decisions in this case. It's a lot of tiny decisions. And I think the other thing that I found remarkable is I, I don't think until I even did the podcast in a way, really stepping back and looking at what the director has to do, it's a crazy job because on the one hand, you're the author of this experience in a way, but you're also like commanding this huge number of people, um, many of whom you're not even quite sure what exactly it is that they're doing. Um, you know, you have to, and, and they're skill sets that aren't necessarily natural for one person to have, because as an artistic person, you probably may not be the best manager of other people. And, you know, some people like it more. There's a great moment in the story where Spielberg visits De Palma on the set. They're old friends. And Spielberg likes the process. He likes to go to lunch with everybody. He <laughs> likes to hang out. And, you know, Brian De Palma doesn't. <laughs> and and for him, it crowds his thought process. He needs, you know, it's it's like when I'm writing, I'm not one of those people who can go to a coffee shop and write. I have to be in my same room at my desk. And if there's any noise, I go insane because mm. all I can do is hear that. Um, you know, other people aren't like that. But on a film set, there's just so much going on and so many people needing some kind of information. So many you. questions. That's what I remember Ava DuVernay saying a director's job is just to answer a million questions a day. Yeah, that's right. And and on Bonfire, even worse, because there was no producer. So you couldn't even slough off the money <laughs> questions. You know, it was just this constant. And, and because it was shot on the streets of New York. And, and for me, that was part of the fun. Because New York, just as it is in the book Bonfire, is a huge character in the movie. And so there's something really exhilarating about seeing the, the, the city that I happen to love and live in now um, as a major character. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. So you're on set for a year. You started to write your book. 
Did you think at that point that you were going to write about the Hollywood fiasco? And did you did you worry about the reaction to that book? I mean, your book is not negative at all. But did you think about the cast and crew while you're writing? Boy, that's a great question. Did I think about the cast? I think I was in such a panic of trying to just tell the story. I My memory of writing that book is like being on some kind of altered state of consciousness because there was, I was on a deadline that even in retrospect, I can't believe that I did it. I mean, it was literally, the the film came out in December. My book was actually due in May. Wow. And I, now, to explain, throughout the whole process, I had been transcribing the tapes myself because I didn't want to give them to anybody else to transcribe. And I'd been typing up all my notes almost every day because I felt like the only thing I didn't do that year was sleep as far as I can remember. But I feel like I felt like I needed to have all that material. It was like getting ready for a marathon and I didn't have time to do anything but write. When I started writing, I knew that the movie had been a bomb. Mm. And I just said to myself, stay in real time throughout the writing of the book. And that was really hard because, you know, it's hard not to take what you know and put it earlier, but it's almost like you have to just stay in real time because I've said it and I really mean it. I wanted the book to be exactly as it would have been regardless if it had been a success or a failure up until the very end. Yeah. And because you know what? That's how it is in real life. You really don't know until you walk into that preview. Um, you don't know if this is going to be the most brilliant thing in the world or or not. Yeah, again, no one sets out to make a bad movie. And your book is so fascinating because it is real time and it takes you onto the set. It's so instructive for people who want to know how these big movies are made or were made at the time. Afterwards, did you hear from the cast and crew and, and Brian De Palma? What was what were his thoughts on the book? So, you know, after the after the movie came out, Brian kind of went into hiding for a while, understandably. But then throughout the fall, I needed him to just tell me what were you thinking. The way I decided to construct the book, I'm not in the book big difference with the podcast. That was a big, giant leap for me. Um, because in the book, I made a decision. I don't want to be there. I want to be just as invisible as I was on the set. So there are a lot of times in the book when I'll say De Palma thought or De Palma whatever. And whenever I say that, it's what he thought because he told me. and um, Or it's at least what he told me he thought. And I think he mostly tells the truth. Uh, <laughs> for better and for worse. Yeah. And um, so I definitely stayed very much in touch with him, with Monica Goldstein, with Eric, with really a lot of people. Fred Caruso, there were just so many details that I needed. So yes, I did stay in touch with them throughout the writing of the book. And when the book came out, I heard a lot of nice responses from people. Eric Schwab was initially horrified because in the book, not in the podcast, I talked a lot about his private life, not in a lascivious way, but just he had fallen in love with this young woman and casualties of war. So that was part of his relationship with Brian was tied up with his private life. They ultimately got married, still Mm. are, Mm. have a kid. Um, But I think for him as a non- 
public figure, it was shocking. Um, And then ultimately, he liked it. Um, But I think for everybody, the reaction was shock, I think, because nobody knew what I was doing, (laughs) including me. Yeah. But, you know, I think I was just sort of this person taking notes and occasionally sticking a tape recorder in front of people's mouths. And I think when it came out, I think it was a surprise to everybody. I never heard from the studio executives. Um, So, you know, I think it was a surprise. But the filmmakers themselves, I heard from a lot of people. And then some people I didn't hear till now. Yeah. So Larry McConkey, it was so funny because I really loved him, the steady cam operator. He's a really great, brilliant, eccentric guy. And I think I said it in the podcast. I had described the way he walked as a pregnant duck. Yes. And when I called him, he says, I really disagree with the way you describe it. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no. And then when he told me what it was, I just laughed. You know, I said, okay. What was it like for you to listen to these tapes again, not only hearing the audio that you captured, but hearing yourself at that time? Ah, it was um, hearing myself. Um Usually less humiliating than I was expecting. I mean, thank God my interview style is to just be kind of bumbly and (laughs) let people fill in the blanks. I wouldn't say it's a style, just what happens. Um, But uh, it was nostalgic, honestly, you know, to think about where I was in my life at that point. Uh, It was the first of many books that I wrote. It was a um, it was fun. I mean, it was really the, one of the hardest things I've done professionally, just from a physical stamina point of view, but it was so exciting. And for me to look, to hear that is really, it was quite exciting. And yet always tinged with this undercurrent of not guilt, but sadness that for De Palma, I think every bit of this uh, you know, is just another another pulling off the scab that you think is just healed. So that's always a mixed feeling, right? Yeah. So um, imagine it didn't surprise you that Brian De Palma didn't want to be interviewed for the podcast. No, I never expected that he would, although I always hoped he would. And I had called him right after I was approached by first campsite and then TCM to tell him I was going to do it. I wanted to do it. And asked him if he would participate. And he just very matter-of-factly said, no, we've talked about it enough. But then he told me, you know, where this Charlie Rose interview and this one was and that one was. He was incredibly helpful about it. But, um, you know, and I'm a pest, so I tried a couple more times. And it's just clear. And, you know, at a certain point, it's rude. You know, I mean, I think he's done, you know, he was really generous. He's been a really... um, you know, very honorable about the whole thing. And, you know, I have to respect that. Well, what was the podcast process like for you, your first time hosting a podcast? Um, Amazing. I mean, you know, for me, just to be collaborative is such a funny experience because as a writer, you sit alone in the room and then finally you and your editor. So at the most you have one person and then a copy editor, you know, but during the actual creation part, you're by yourself. And all of a sudden I had this amazing team, Natalia Winkleman from um, Campside is just, 
you know, it was so much, we had fun. I mean, we'd be there in the recording studio and we'd be rewriting things and laughing. And maybe that's the wrong thing to say. Oh, yes, it was really difficult. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was fun. And, and um, yes, the meta quality of all of this has been amusing and amazing, you know, that, let's see, let's start. It was a series of, Bonfire was a series of articles in Rolling Stone that became a book that became a movie that became a movie about the making of the movie about the book based on <laughs> Rolling Stone and now a podcast. About the mo- making of the movie, the movie and the book and the articles. Very yes. good. Yay, you get a prize. So it's it's material that has been written about before, but it is a different experience, isn't it, when you hear it in audio form? It is. I mean, I think it's really different. I've I've had even family members say to me, you know, oh, I really liked your book, but hearing people's voices is amazing. You know, there's nothing that can match it because, you know, when you hear Monica Goldstein, who's got this great quality in her voice, or you hear Eric Schwab, a young guy who's so excited, it's, no matter how many, I mean, not to denigrate my abilities as a writer, but no matter how many times you write about that, there's nothing like hearing it. It just is, you know, it's like when you see a movie based on a book, it's sort of frustrating. With one shot, you can convey pages of information and audio has a similar quality to it. And you got to reconnect with some of the crew members, do new interviews. Something that was surprising to me was how much they remembered. Me too. I, I was surprised at how much they m- remembered and how much Bonfire still meant to them. So I think for everybody, being part of Bonfire became part of this whole um, phenomenon. And, you know, Tom Wolfe was unbelievably gracious about my book. I mean, so people responded to it in such a nice way that it was, I think, all of the people associated with, except maybe Brian, yeah, <laughs> felt um, good about it. And he was very generous about my book always and about the podcast. I mean, he, he I know he at least listened to the first couple um, and thought that the podcast was well done. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. it was. Yeah. And the, for the crew members, th- there was no embarrassment about being on this movie. For so many of them, it gave them such opportunities. It did. I mean, I think there's some ambivalence about it. You know, I think certainly for Eric, you know, I think because he's so identified with Brian that he was, you know, I think it's a mixed bag. But I think for most of the crew members, that's the beauty of not being the director. You did your job great. It's on to the next thing. But you don't, nobody says, um, the Brian, nobody says the Brian De Palma film with costumes by so-and-so. It's the Brian De Palma film. Yeah. So you get the glory, but you also get the punch in the face. You know, Brian has, I think a lot of directors do this. They have a group of people who they work with often because they trust each other. And it's the closest thing to an office companionship you can have. So many of the people on Bonfire had worked on previous De Palma films. One of those people is Monica Goldstein, who was his assistant, who became the associate producer. She'd worked for him for five years at that point. And she told this, she told me this great story now when I called her up to talk to her about how on every movie that she'd worked with um, Brian on, she had made Um, she had taken a million photographs on the set and then she would make a collage and give it to 
you know, different people who worked on the set, you know, like a little scrapbook of memories. That's lovely. And she said for bonfires, she had, and she did it for casualties of war and she gave it to everybody, even though that movie didn't do well either. But for bonfires, she said she had collected, she had just found all the old photographs, but she had decided not to do the collage because it had been so painful for Brian that she thought he wouldn't want it. But I took all these pictures on the set. I asked permission and I was going to make a black, you know, a collage of, of the making of the movie. And then, and I just, because it was just received so poorly, there was so much turmoil. I didn't finish it. And so I said, well, maybe now, maybe now it's time. Yeah, maybe now time's passed. That's so yeah, sweet. It was so sweet. But I think it also represented that, you know, in, in the final episode, Eric Schwab talks about how hard the life is. It's a it's a crazy life. I mean, if you want to be successful at it, you have to pick up and go. And it's not even like being a foreign correspondent where at least you can go live someplace for five years. You pick up and go for eight months. And um, so it's this constant uncertainty, constant craziness in a way. So people who have families or, um, you know, it's very hard to maintain all of that um, and this kind of a life. So I think each one of these movies become, you know, forget the movie. The movie becomes a kind of, I mean, it sounds corny, but it is a kind of family or it is a kind of, these are your people. And I imagine for the crew and for you, when you watch The Bonfire of the Vanities, you're thinking about everything that happened behind the scenes. A hundred percent. People are always saying, well, when did you know the movie was a disaster? And I always say never. I mean, for me, it's still fun. I love watching the movie. I mean, now to do the podcast, I've watched the movie 10 million times. <laughs> and um, I always get a kick out of it, which I know is not the common response. But I mean, for example, I could never review Bonfire of the Vanities because <laughs> yeah. I have no perspective whatsoever. But um, for me, I remember where I was, what happened, all the issues going on behind the scenes, the film, the scene before it that was cut. You know, it's a completely different experience. That's why, to your point, it is a miracle that a movie ever gets made because I don't, to this day, even having watched it, written about it, understanding, I still don't understand how you can do it when it's all jumbled up and you're doing this here and that yeah. there. And it's it's really amazing. So when you listen to the podcast, you hear about all the money going towards various scenes. But when was the moment that the crew realized that the budget was extremely tight? So when I spoke to Eric Schwab now, the second unit director, he told this story that I actually didn't know. It's not in the book, or maybe it is in the book. I can't even remember. But it was, Eric Schwab told this great story about how they had to go back to, um, he and his crew had to go back to New York to do some retakes of um, a scene that would show the New York skyline. And this was after the first previews, which were not good. And he said he drove out to, uh, I think it was Randall's Island, which is in the middle of um, of the East River. So they drive out in a rental car with the location scout. The location scout leaves them off with his crew. It was okay. We're filming on top. Uh, but then I remember when we went to go back home after we finished the shot, we walk out and and we walk in right in front of the hospital. There's a bus stop and, and the location guy's standing there. I said, why are we standing here? 
says, uh, to go back home. I said, well, where's our car? He said, the studio said we had to return it. So I said, how are we getting back? It was, we're taking the bus. They literally had to take a bus off. It's not easy to get off that island and to where they were trying to get. So it took them hours to get home taking public transportation. And they stayed in a much less nice hotel. So that's when they knew. <laughs> yeah. So he said, wow, things have really changed. <laughs> So your whole experience with The Bonfire of the Vanities, being on set, writing your book, The Devil's Candy, how did it change your relationship to film and in particular film criticism? Um, Well, it changed it in a couple of ways. One was being on the set of Bonfire of the Vanities, two, writing a book that got widely reviewed here and abroad um, and experiencing mostly, thank goodness, really good reviews, but the occasional, "Eh." and um, It became harder to be a good film critic because to be a good film critic, you can't pull your punches. You can't be, I don't think you have to be mean necessarily, but you can't be overly nice either. And it was harder. And, you know, everybody who's written, anybody who's written film criticism, you get your, you know, most people like reading negative film criticism because it's funnier or, you know, people are mean. I don't know. And I've done my share for sure. But it became harder and harder to do that. And because of both experiencing reviews, but also seeing how hard people worked and knowing they weren't criminals, they were just, you know, whatever. It just didn't work out that time. And how would you categorize your relationship with film today? I still love film. I mean, the last year and a half, I haven't gotten to go. But I will say one of the first things my husband and I did when we felt it was okay to go out was go to the movies. <laughs> you know, because some movies still, you can watch them on home, but unless you have the biggest screen in the world, certain movies just, do you really want to see Nomadland on a little screen? I mean, I know most people did, but better on a big screen. <laughs> and communal experience as yeah. well. Yeah. No, I enjoy that. I mean, I I, uh, I hope we all get back to that as a regular event very soon because it's been my life. I mean, from the time I was a little kid, you know, going those 60-mile, two-hour drive to Cincinnati, it was, uh, it's been a huge part of my life. Well, Julie Salomon, thank you so much for giving us your time and telling the story on TCM's podcast, The Plot Thickens Season 2. It's been such a pleasure to listen to you. Thank you. It's been so much fun to talk to you, Alicia. Season 2 of The Plot Thickens was produced by Campside Media in partnership with Turner Classic Movies. It was hosted by Julie Salomon. Natalia Winkleman is the producer. Story editors are Joanne Ferrion and Angela Carone. Editing on this episode by Sierra Franco. Mixing by Rod Sherwood. Production support from Yaakov Friedman and Susanna Zapeta. Special thanks to Megan Major, Diana Bosch, David Byrne, and Doug Slaywin. Thomas Avery of Tune Welders composed our theme music. At Campside Media, the executive producers are Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriatis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scher. TCM's director of podcasts is Angela Carone. Charlie Tabish is the executive producer. TCM's general manager is Paula Shagnon. Check out our website at tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. It has information about each episode and tons of great photos. Again, that's tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz. Stay tuned for season three. It's coming this fall. And thanks for listening.